Today's April 30th, 2018, and you're listening to Human Factors Cast, episode 88 miles per hour. Today, we are talking everything from controlling your house with interactive walls, how Disney is improving the human-robot interaction, and Mozilla's VR chat room. Be sure to throw on your force jacket, because Human Factors Cast starts right now. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. Hey, happy Monday, everyone. Today is April 30th. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. I already said that. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today, as always, by my good friend and yours, Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Oh, it's always good when Nick wants to read the intro twice. But how are you, man? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Obviously, uh, a little, a little. Um, I don't know. It's a Monday, man. But but we're here. We're here to talk about human factors. It's going to be a good show. I have a feeling in my bones. Uh, but Blake, what's going on with you, man? Oh man, so I have a bit of a soapbox topic today. Uh oh. Really, I'm going to bring up some good some good examples of this. But Nick, have you ever like visited a website or been? Or maybe you've. Do you do a lot of e-commerce shopping? I do quite a bit of e-commerce shopping. Okay, so it, I don't know. This is this will be like kind of a lengthy example, but a lot of websites they'll put on like big sales and stuff like that and advertise it like far in advance so they can get enough like leverage and people will be coming to the site and whatnot. But there's a problem when when websites are not prepared for the amount of traffic they're going to get, which can be both a, a good and a bad thing, right? Like, one, your servers go down, they can't handle the amount of people, but two, you're getting an amazing amount of traffic to your site. Sure, yeah, um, double-edged sword. And so that, yeah, so it happened to me earlier today. I was, uh, I was on it, was doing, like, a giant sale. It's, like, a supplement and fitness company, and they happened, their site happened to just, like, crash the second that, <laughs> that the, like, timer went down that they were going to do this giant sale. Oh, man. But... The, the awesome thing about it, and I threw it up on my Instagram um, because I just thought it was great to see. It was really simple, but it was a great error page, right? So it had everything that you would need to know to get status up, updates as well as like some information about like if you really had a serious problem, you could call customer service. But I mean, it, it, was, it was clean. It, it told you like, hey, we're experiencing high volume at the website right now, and it has gone down. But you can follow updates here and here, being Facebook and Twitter. And if you really have a big problem, call somebody. Uh, so it's just one of those times where I where I think people, where I like to see where companies have really thought about the end user experience, uh, even when things go negatively, trying to really optimize as much as you can what people are going to experience then and try and make them keep coming back. Uh, and I, I would love to have nerded out on how many how many people were coming back from those like status update, uh, like Facebook and Twitter links later on. Uh, but it was it was just a good experience to see. Uh, and just yeah. another one that I have seen because I have screwed up so many GitHub things on my own account a million times. But and I meant to show this one to you, Nick, but they always do some kind of like animated 404 page of something yes. breaks. Yes. And and one of my favorite ones is a Star Wars take where it's I think it's supposed to be simulating their little cat squid being Luke on Tatooine 
Um, but anyway, oh, it's just one great. of those things that I hope companies think about. Like, it's not just about providing a positive experience for the things that you want people to do at all times, like shopping through your website or coming to your site. But what do you do when it screws up? When you make mistakes, how do you recover from them and make sure that people feel, you know, confident they can come back to you? And that's like a super important aspect of design. I don't know. So I don't. Okay. So let me let me pose this to you, Blake. So there's. Um, there's an error code, right? And, and here, usability heuristics state uh, that you should not use error codes or something that's um, sort of, you know, not everyday language for the user. And 404, you mentioned 404. 404 to me has almost become like common vernacular. Like I, I know what it is, uh, but I'm not sure if that's just me as a demographic or if that's because uh, so many pages have 404 on me, you know, in my lifetime that it's become almost a pervasive sort of uh, uh, language for page not found, right? Like I, I know what that means inherently. And so whenever I see 404 on a website, there's no, um, you know, it, it's an acceptable error code to me because as a user, I know what that means. Yeah, it's it's a weird one because if you when you start like going the down the rabbit hole of those error codes, there are a lot of them. We just see 404 the most and I think we have become very very, you know, used to seeing it. But a lot of pages that I see that do 404s as well, they don't really have a lot of great recovery mechanisms. It's oh, more yeah. so like uh, like um one one example is Smashing Magazine. Like they have a 404 page that's consistent and it's cute it's got a cat on it and says like hey we didn't find whatever you're looking for go to these other places um and github does the same thing but it's not necessarily any kind of recovery it's like oh we don't really know what happened here go other places Uh, so i i don't really know how effective it is but i do agree that we have become just kind of used to seeing it uh, and we don't really see a lot of the other other crazy error messages or other three letter three numeric error messages all the time yeah but do do you have any kind of like suggestions of what they should do instead well no not not what they should do instead like i I was saying like 404 is fine for me but i don't know if it's fine for everybody and you know one thing that they could do is like uh provide search results i've seen that on 404 page 404 pages too if you know like whatever uh url that you put in the Thing, if it has keywords in it, you know, it'll search for those keywords alongside the 404 page. I've seen that before um, on a couple domains. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at the Onnit uh, thing that you posted here on your Instagram, and, and I'm not seeing any code, which is why I actually brought this up. But um, it's it's nice to see, like, this is a great example, right? They Like you said, they provide um, external links, so that way you can follow them and see kind of uh, the social media component of of what's going on with the status of the site. Yeah. And it, it's one of those that I liked more than let's say like the GitHub one, but when, and again, GitHub's geared towards a totally different demographic. So 404 would definitely play. Oh yeah. Uh, a lot higher there. Right. But in this case, it, it's preventing any of that from like hitting some end user. Cause this is, this is like a totally demographic that may not be as technologically savvy or doesn't really want to see any of that kind of information. Just give me what I can actually use as like a, a human being and where, where I can go to find out more. Uh, so I thought it was a really good design choice on their part. So Blake, I got a couple things to mention here. Um, you know, the saga of movie pass continues. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I, yes, I feel really bad for recommending this to our listeners like a couple weeks ago. Just this, 
they're they're engaging in this shady practice right now where they are changing the terms of service and it reminds me of uh in episode five uh the empire strikes back when darth vader goes i'm altering the deal pray i don't alter it further uh because honestly the deal was you know, you get unlimited movies a year and unlimited is in quotes because you get one movie a day. So in essence, you get 365 movies a year. Then they retracted that plan and added this. You get four movies a year or sorry, four, four movies a month. Uh, four movies a year would be much worse. Four movies a month. Oh, Nick, don't tell me this has changed again, though. This has changed again, but it's for everybody. So now instead of uh, of um, they used to have you used to be able to go and watch as many movies as you'd like. Uh, and, and or, or the same movie multiple times. And then Friday morning, right after the Avengers Infinity War comes out, uh, sure enough, they say, you've already seen this movie. You can't go see it again. And what? Yep. So they've implemented this one time. You can see a movie one time now. And uh, it, it, it just doesn't feel fair. It feels like very bait and switch kind of uh, dark um UXE, like it just feels slimy, man. It just does well, not feel good. Especially for you, because you should have been on like the the quote unquote grandfathered inside of well, that, yes. or it shouldn't have really affected you. Well, and that's what I'm saying is like they've changed the terms of service after I've already purchased this product, and now I'm not paying for what I thought I was paying for in the beginning, and I've paid for an entire year up front. So, yes, I could go in and request a refund uh, for the rest of the year. But I'm sure there's got to be some class action lawsuits uh, against this thing. Anyway, Saga of Movie Pass continues. Um, so at this point in time, I'm not recommending it. It just feels slimy. It feels really bad. But that leads me to my next point. So not Movie Pass related, not Avengers Infinity War related. Well, kind of. I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. Uh, don't worry. I know you haven't, Blake, so I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it. Don't worry. But at the end of the movie, I swear I'm not going to spoil it. Please stick with me. At the end of the movie. He's going to spoil it. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. We happen to be sitting in front of um, some teenage girls, and uh, my partner and I, we have often discussed, have you seen these videos on YouTube that are like, this movie ending explained, right? Have you seen these? Uh, yeah, I've seen those before. So... Uh, my partner and I, we, we were uh, sort of expressing like, wow, who would ever need these things, right? Who, who would need videos that explain something so cut and dry and obvious? And um, not to, again, not going to spoil the movie. Don't worry. The ending of the movie was pretty cut, dry, and obvious as to what happened. And um, the first thing when the credits rolled, we hear these teenage girls behind us saying, oh man, I need to go home and watch a YouTube video that explains that. And we kind of both looked at each other and said, ah, that's the demographic that those those videos are for. And it kind of reminded me, you know, that those the people who produce those videos are producing for a certain demographic and they have to be in touch with that demographic. And the fact that I wasn't even aware that that demographic, demographic existed uh, was kind of eye-opening to me. Well, yeah, it makes sense, though, right? Because, I mean, it's not a set of people that you're creating content for. You don't view the same content, likely, uh, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of interesting, and maybe I'm misconceptualizing what these, like, the explain what the end of the movie YouTube videos are like. Because I know a lot of people were sending out and sending me, like, explanations of what happened across, like, almost reminder YouTube videos of what happened across all the Marvel movies that get to the to Infinity War, 
Um, and I've found that helpful because it's been so long oh, sure. since I've seen a lot of them. Yeah, but re- it, it, that's kind of a weird twist what you're talking about, like the ending explained. Yeah, so recap movie or recap videos are different, right? Because recap videos will be like, okay, look, this is this is what happened in the last couple minutes of the, or, or this is what happened across the movie or whatever. But the ending explained goes into like. This is what everything means, like literally spelling it out for you. And and, uh, you know, it, the, it didn't need it. It didn't need that. And honestly, <laughs> like, like, I just don't understand. It's it's so hard for me to comprehend. Anyway, we should probably get talking about human factors here. Uh, so before we get started, though, I just want to remind everyone that we had uh, some wonderful coverage coming out of Kai 2018 last week. Our field correspondent Woodrow Gustafson was out there. Um doing all the investigative stuff he was uh you know checking out all the cool demos and going to some of these panels and we have a we have a couple great episodes of content i know they're a little longer but stick with them uh listen to them and bits and fits and spurts and and you'll get through them but um lots yeah of- guys please send some love to woodrow for doing that for everybody in the community in the slack because that was a lot of work on his part and he was taking time out of his day during the during the conference to kind of try and meet people and make sure he was seeing as much as he could. So thanks again to Woodrow for taking so much time and giving us so much great feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he actually met a couple contacts that we're hoping to interview this week. So, so be looking forward to a couple more bonus episode content. Uh, they'll be, they'll be short there. They'll, they'll be interviews. Um, but hopefully we'll get some more interviews from people who were at Kai. So that way you can kind of get, uh, you know, information from somebody else's mouth. That's not ours. And maybe even in the future here, uh, we'll have a couple other surprise guests on the show that, that may or may not, uh, you know, we're, we're very much looking forward to some of the stuff we got planned for you. So, so just stay tuned. Just a reminder, we got UXPA in Boston. That's uh, Thursday, May 10th. So coming up here, 10 days. Got AHFE International in tw- uh, 2018 in Orlando, Florida from July 21st to the 25th. HFES in good old Philly, uh, uh, Philadelphia. Um, and uh, that's going to be from October 1 through 5. And then we got HFES Australia in Perth. And that's November 26th through 28th. If you guys have any events that you want to send our way, we do have a listener Slack. So if you're listening to this right now and have an event that you think we should start plugging on the show, let us know. Uh, jump in that Slack and let everybody know it's full of a bunch of uh, human factors practitioners and people with a wealth of knowledge. So Please go check that out. Anyway, Blake, why don't you say we get into the news? Let's do it. All right. So this is the show all about Human Factors News. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything. You name it, as long as it deals with the human and the factors, it is fair game. Blake, what do we got up first this week? Oh, man. Okay, so this week, immersive experiences definitely seek to engage the full sensory system in ways that words, pictures, or touch alone cannot do. With respect to the haptic system, though, physical feedback has been the traditional way of providing tactile feedback through usually handheld experiences or vibrations based based on design, largely ignoring both pressure receptors and the full body area as conduits for expressing the meaning of what the sight and sound that you're seeing is doing. So the Disney research team has extended the potential for immersion along these dimensions with the force jacket, a novel, a novel array of pneumatically actuated airbags and force sensors that provide precisely directed force and high frequency vibrations to the upper body. 
The study actually describes the pneumatic hardware and the force controls algorithm, the algorithms that user studies were conducted to verify in terms of the perception of airbag location and ma- pressure magnitude, as well as subsequent studies that define the full torso pressure and vibration felt by things such as being punched or hugged or even a snake moving across your body. So the Disney team actually discusses in depth in this research paper the effects of what this prototype was like in both the physical world as well in virtual reality applications. And Nick, I have not really seen a whole lot that is so intensely done by companies in terms of really great research that's coming out and they're putting out like full papers behind it. And Disney has now done done it in what we'll see as two stories across today. Um, but this force jacket is a very interesting medium for kind of providing that more immersive experience you could see in either in their parks or in different virtual environments. Yeah, so we've seen sort of these haptic uh, haptic feedback mechanisms before, right? We've seen we've seen pressure suits, we've seen um, sort of these uh, suits that vibrate when you get interacted with in a virtual environment or, or something along those lines. This is different in the sense that they are using pressure, right? And they they hinted at something very key that I think hasn't been explored up until this point. Um, you know, they're ignoring the pressure receptors in in uh, full upper body, right? So, so like I said, we have the tactile experiences, things touching you. We have vibration, things moving on you, but we don't really have the pressure. And the pressure kind of morphs to your body, which is sort of a, I don't know, it, it, it provides, like, if you think about getting a hug and getting sort of this simulated hug at certain points, you can kind of feel how that would break down, right? Like if you're listening to this kind of splay out your fingers and press them against your chest and then like kind of imagine that is one kind of hug and then go actually hug yourself. And then that's a different kind of hug. And it's very different because there's so much more contact along your skin. There's actual pressure being applied to your body rather than just pinpoint pressure. And that's just one sort of example, right? I mean, you can think about they, they, you know, one of the articles that we pulled for this story was, um, I think it was TechCrunch or something, but they say, you know, you can actually imagine what it feels like to hulk out now, uh, where your muscles kind of tighten and, and these things kind of constrict around you. Like, you know, your clothes are getting tighter on you, uh, talking about Avengers, you know, I mean, that's all the rage now, but, um, you know, that kind of thing is possible now where you couldn't really get that with haptic suits before, like vibration just wouldn't do the trick. So, there's a lot of application for this. I'm really excited. Yeah, and just so listeners can kind of, if you haven't seen the article, I definitely encourage you to look at it because it's got a great video explaining kind of the the background and how this was used and tested. But basically think of a jacket that you would put on that on the inside has got a lot of, I think it's around like 20 little square airbags that will inflate and deflate depending on what situation you're in. Like Nick was describing, if you were to hulk out, the idea is that the airbags would increase air and make you feel like that you're gaining a bunch of different muscles like the Hulk would. And they even like show kind of an interplay of how this would pan out kind of in virtual reality where you would see yourself change and then get the feeling of the the jacket pressure hitting your skin, making you think that you're actually in the game being more immersive and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I can imagine this being used for like, uh, like let's say you are, so they, they mentioned like 
being able to feel like you just got shot in a virtual environment. And up until this point, it's been vibrations, but this is actual pressure. Now I'm wondering how fast these things can expand and whether or not that impact will, you know, provide enough of a shock to where you're like, Oh, that felt real. You know, um, it, it, it kind of like a jolt to the body. I, I don't know. There's, this is really cool to me, obviously as someone who studies VR, um, and mixed reality, but, but I, I don't know. It's always fun to bring sort of these interesting feedback mechanisms into the into the news cycle and and see what other people are doing. Oh yeah, definitely. And what was kind of even more interesting to me is they they of course tested it with users to see how how it worked out and if the if the actual feedback that they were getting was you know consistent with the, what they were seeing either on screen but they also talk about the GUI they developed and alongside with this that I would that I'm assuming would really be implemented later on if it let's say like somebody else was in like think of like a Disney theme park where you may put this on for some sort of experience they were able to you know tailor some of the different experiences depending on if you're like a child or you're an adult changing the different haptics or like Nick was talking about having those sharper kind of hits if you were to get hit by something in the virtual world or in the virtual experience you were having uh, so that was that was kind of an interesting thing to look at uh, in terms of what they were creating for this ui to affect all the airbags in the suit yeah i mean they they mentioned things like punch hug snake moving across the body like you said earlier um and yeah i just i i'm excited for what this means for attractions going forward because if you think about sort of uh, these interactive experiences, you, there's often, okay. So I'm, I'm thinking about sort of you, we've talked about this before, Blake offline or off the show, but, but these, uh, sort of scary experiences where you go to theme parks and, and scare actors jump out of nowhere and touch you and whatever. Um, but they can't touch you most of the time without you having to sign some sort of waiver. Yeah. And what you could do with this is you're in a virtual environment, like a virtual scare zone, if you will, and you get all the sensations of touch and whatever on you. And that might be more scary than not. I don't know. Like I, I, I'm thinking of what kind of uh, theme park applications or getting a hug from Baymax, which kind of leads into our next story, right? <laughs> oh, it totally does. Cause this is what I think of when I see the next story. All right, let's go ahead and get into it. Then we kind of hinted at it. It's also Disney. So. Yes, indeed. So more Disney research. So no longer confined to cages and factories, robotic systems designed to exist among humans can be found interacting in diverse settings, providing information, entertainment, education, therapy, and even physical assistance. In these scenarios, physical interaction may substantially enhance human-robot communication, productivity, and even the infinity. Where physical robot-human interaction is expected robots should be compliant and reactive to avoid human injury or any kind of hardware damage when they're interacting with humans to meet these kinds of requirement both passive and active compliance in a robot system uh, is is being developed using some 3d printed soft skin modules which sense force via an air filled cavity similar to what we were talking about with the the jacket airbags uh, connected to an actual air pressure sensor. And these force sensing modules are actually designed to cover various small lengths of a humanoid hand or another robot part that enable the robot to sense force over a large area or over its entire body while requiring less cumbersome electronics or even wiring or other techno tactile sensors to work or interact with humans. So if you, just to give a visual for this, think of like a, a basically a robotic arm coming out of a box but with a large 
Betamax, Betamax looking skin to it that is both again like kind of forced out by air so it's very very much similar to the kind of the idea of what's inside of this force jacket but it's like it's just being used to give kind of a skeleton and a like a spongy feeling kind of if you're if you're out to squeeze your own arm of a robotic arm yeah so I want to talk about why we're putting this on Human Factors Cast and why it's considered Human Factors News. And a lot of it comes down to the application of soft robots like Baymax that you see in Big Hero 6. There, are, There's this concept of a therapy robot, right, where, um, you know, you, you don't want something cold and, and robotic to be a therapy thing. You want something that you can hold, something that you can hug, something that you can just express emotion with. And this kind of seems to do the trick, right? I mean, it's a hand, it's an arm at this point, but the technology is there. They even show in the video the guy hugging it. So in terms of therapy, this can definitely be, you know, we're on the right track. And I think we sort of had that idea long ago with Big Hero 6 and even before then um, with therapy robots. But uh, I think we even talked about on the show um, potentially these robots with like lifelike tails that kind of flicked around. And that was seen as more therapeutic than robots without the tails. Uh, just kind of uh, giving these animal-like qualities to these robots uh, just made a huge difference. So I'm wondering what kind of other situations that these things could be used in where you're interacting with the human. There's a lot of rich content from the human-robot interaction field for this type of thing. Yeah, and I mean, to pull off of what you might see this used for in like Disney World or Disneyland, I could see this being like a, a real-life beta or part of a real-life Betamax walking around and interacting with children or other adults anything like that but i think what surprised me the most beyond just the obvious kind of really amazing tactile sensors and what happens when you actually hug it and it's able to kind of create that actual feedback for you like it's indenting and it's kind of in enveloping you in its own like embrace but what watching it actually use and articulate its hands and realizing that through one of the videos that they show and they talk a li little bit about it in the paper what is in that um, in the thing it grasps is like six marshmallows that are in a little bag and it for it to be able to grab something so precisely but enough not to like not that it's squeezing anything down or breaking anything or squeezing the the uh, package open is pretty amazing to me and then the interaction with the human as well seemed very it, it's a little bit jet like kind of uh, you know jarring but it's uh, very seamless in terms of it knows when to let go or when it should. Uh, you know, grasp harder, those kind of things. So, I mean, the, the robotics all around seem like they're really coming along from Disney's perspective. Yeah, you know what Disney's going to end up using these things for? So uh, <laughs> I, I can only imagine, like, a myriad of things. One of the one of the ones I thought they were going to do is, like, replace a lot of the walking around characters yes, with them. Yes, that's exactly where I was going with it because those people get paid a lot of money for what they do. Um, you know, obviously they can't, get rid of the human actors, right? Like the, the women who play the princesses and the men who play, uh, like the, the prince. I don't know. The, you know, the, the, the human actors, they can't do that. But for the, a lot of the character actors that wear a full suit, this is something that they can absolutely do. Unleash these autonomous robots in the park that are going around hugging children with just the right amount of force. Um, and the parents and the children will never know the difference because, you know, with all these advances in robotics and, and especially some of this technology that we see here, um, 
it's going to feel just like a human or it's going to act just like a human would. And I think that's an important thing to know. Right. And, and what kind of, what kind of things are going to be in place? What kind of processes are going to be in place for exposing some of the sort of ethical concerns with this, right? Like, hey, your child's about to hug a robot. There's no there's no person behind the mask there. If the robot runs haywire, that's an, a risk you accept when you bought the park ticket. Like, how do they communicate these things? And how do people know? Is it even important as long as these things function well and do the job that they're supposedly going to do? I don't know. There's a lot of process questions that I have around sort of the implied use for these things than than the actual thing itself. And I think that's what's also important to kind of spark these discussions. So I don't know. What do you think, Blake? Well, I mean, it's it's definitely one more terms and services agreement that's going to be <laughs> updated real quick, right? Like sure. everything else. But you bring in a really great point. And what I, this is kind of what I liken to uh, how we're going about having to deal with autonomous vehicles, whether it's like UAVs or if it's self-driving cars. I mean, in some regards, it's going to be necessary, especially especially in the UAV case, right? Like if you own and manage a specific drone or even a set of drones that are flying in some kind of airspace, you're, you're, you're in control of what that drone is doing. Even if it has some level of autonomy, you can always hop back into the loop, make changes that need to be made or kind of pull it back or rear it back in to the best right. you can. Uh, and I feel like that there's going to have to be something like that here, especially when we're talking about now robots that are going to be kind of walking around. But the, the biggest part being that they're interacting with small children because um, it's obvious that the science is coming along and the, the hardware is getting there behind like how the robots can do this. But in terms of what's going to happen from like a monitoring perspective or what do you do in these failed these kind of like fail moments. What what's the fail safe for all of these kind of situations you might find yourself in? Um, I'm sure that's that's got to be a big part of what Disney's looking at too, or thinking sure. about, or they'd have to. Well, um, I have I have one partial solution to tackle that. I mean, oftentimes these uh, actors will be out there with a camera person, someone taking pictures. A photographer is what they call them. That's the word I'm looking for. They'll be out there with a photographer, and I feel a like a camera person. A camera person. I feel like the photographer's role in all this is going to change significantly because I feel like they are going to be the person, sort of uh, doing these monitoring tasks, right? Monitoring the automation, making sure it doesn't do anything inappropriate or, or um, you know, hurt the children that are interacting with it, and and. You know, it's it's like consolidating two jobs into one, right? So now the now the photographer I almost forgot the name again. Now the photographer is, you know, both acting as sort of the um uh the 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 check, right? The check for uh whether or not these autonomous systems are behaving appropriately and then also taking pictures of these things at the same time. So I don't know. I think roles will change. And because they can consolidate both of these jobs across one person, then, um, you know, perhaps they'll be making uh, Disney, the corporation will be making more money in the long run because they're not paying somebody to be in the suit. Well, again, too, I mean, if you want to take it even one step further, I mean, what's really stopping you from, like with whatever characters going out sending some kind of drone i mean some of the cameras on drones are amazing right now too and if they just act as a single unit that's moving around and so now you've you've eliminated potentially two jobs but created some some set of mass operator like kind of operators watching all of these things right yeah yeah i don't know i i guess the future will tell and uh 
I I don't know. I look forward to hugging a robotic Baymax at at Disneyland. So <laughs> I really want to hug a Baymax. That that is so awesome. That that's kind of what the design looks like, and I hope that's where it was pulled from. I I, I imagine so. It's Disney research. All right. Well. Thank you to all of our friends over at Disney Research and Gadget for all of our stories this week. If you guys want to follow along with us as we find these stories, you can follow us all over social media or be sure, like I said earlier, to join our Slack. We post all the links to the original articles over there as well as some that we don't post on our social media because we want to make it special for the people who are hanging out in our Slack. All right, Blake, what do we got up next this week? All right, so last week at Tribeca Film Festival, Mozilla previewed its newest concept, a VR hangout service called Hubs. And unlike the virtual reality environment shown off by Facebook and others, you don't need an account to sign in for the platform or a plugin to use. You just click the URL link and you'll be able to be taken straight into the digital space in full VR. And since Hub is built on VR web, Mozilla claims that you'll be able to view it view it on any mixed reality headset starting to starting last week it would be so hubs is isn't the prettiest of service but it manages to pull off easy vr group chat and it can be a stepping stone towards simple recreational and professional meetings in virtual reality so nick i took a look at this and i definitely think it would be something fun to try with friends but i'm not sure about the professional aspect of it yeah well not its current representation in this article i think <laughs> you know that's that's <laughs> A little bit out of the realm of uh, of believable of uh, plausibility there, but but yeah, I, I I absolutely think that something like this could be used in a professional setting. Just imagine like uh, like Woodrow talked about it from Kai last week. You know, you have that sort of three D representation of a person who can be beamed in to um, present. You know, with just a couple cameras and a projector. Um, and this is kind of taking just the avatar approach, right? If you know roughly the approximation of who you're talking to, I think that adds a lot for for these communications, right? And like interpersonal communication is really interesting. There's a lot of things that we pick up uh, from body language and all that. So you don't get that in a virtual environment. And it's going to be interesting to see how we evolve over the next couple of years as these technologies become more and more pervasive in not only our personal lives, but our professional lives as well. And in the workplace and how sort of these virtual rooms, right? We already do telecons. We do these conferences over the telephone and it's already sort of halfway there. Some, some companies do video conferences where, um, you can actually see the other people in another conference room and you get that body language. And now I don't know. I, I honestly don't know, even as somebody who studies virtual reality and augmented reality and mixed reality, what sort of the benefit to having this virtual space for enterprise is going to be because you can accomplish the same thing through, um, through these telecons, right, where you, where you basically are video conferences where you can see the other parties. Um, the only thing, I guess, that's missing is that when they go off screen, you can't see what they're doing. You can't see them mouthing bad words about you, et cetera, et cetera. But I will say there's a ton of potential in the future for mixed reality. If you can imagine an empty seat next to you is populated by someone who's, who's uh, miles and miles away from you, that's cool to me. That's really neat. But this is kind of neat, and it reminds me of that thing I talked about on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, oh, geez, what was it called? Rec Room? Where you kind of had these uh, avatars, and they're, the heads are kind of disembodied. They look like like uh, ambiguous Lego figures almost. I don't know. But uh, I, I think 
the main thing that Mozilla is doing here that I am like super on board for is making virtual environments and uh, sort of interacting with other the social component of these virtual environments. They're making them ubiquitous, and I think you can pretty much access this just from a um, just from their the website, right? You don't even need a headset, but it helps. Is that right? Yeah, according to the the blurb here, all it is is just a literally you need the URL link and you can go straight to it. You have, don't need a plug-in or any kind of account, which is amazing because that's going to be a lot of people that can potentially use it, which is probably their their kind of like reasoning behind making it so simple to get into and maybe a little bit easier to even or a little more simplistic in terms of what you might see see Facebook doing that has like built-in accounts and things like that. Uh, but you bring up a great point with the mixed reality uh, version of this because I was wondering myself like if I just click in if I just hop in and I don't have a headset um, for or I'm just looking at there and it's on like web VR that's not really going to give me that much different of an experience than like like you were talking about if you're just using Skype or any kind of like telecon service that provides video but if you were able to actually look next to you and you could see some embodiment of the person you're talking to, maybe even if you could see some of their gestures or any of that kind of stuff, really give you more information about not just like what their voice is conveying, but maybe what they're even feeling from their body language. I think that just adds that little bit more in terms of like the step towards like true telepresence. So this is just a it's a cool little technology, and I, I I'll be interested to see how it evolves over time, right? Because a lot of stuff that Mozilla does is very open source so usually this stuff kind of starts off small and then expands yeah i don't know i'm trying to do this live right now i'm trying to actually get in the uh the virtual environment here to test it out but it's not giving me any luck here so um, ah, not as simple as advertised That's not as simple as one might think uh but well oh wait 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 hold on enter on screen i don't know what this means grant mic permissions okay so we're going to be podcasting in <laughs> mozilla's uh hubs here so uh let's let's just check this out here we're we're going to be transported to a place there may or may not be some uh offensive language coming our way just just making sure that we sort of disclaimer everyone first. I don't know. Okay, so... Yeah, cover our bases. Yep, we are in a virtual environment. I'm looking around. Hey, is anybody here? Can you hear me? What... Did you name the room? No, it's Uncommon Serene Place is where I'm at. So, I don't know. The, the lag is really bad. I'm not on a very high-end computer for, for where we uh, record the show notes, but uh, I don't know. I, I'm in I'm in some place, and uh, I'm it's some uncommon serene place is what the thing says. I can't use Waz to move. Okay, I'm at two frames per second, so maybe it's not as accessible as one may hope. But I don't know, cool concept. Yeah, you can pick up a rubber rugger, rubber duck and uh, throw it, but that's about all I can do right now. I don't see anybody in the room either. Uh, I'm oh, not were really you sure in there? about movement? You did you just go in there? Yep, I'm in there, and you can move around with the arrow keys. It's pretty. It's pretty cool for a little like. It's it's a very very video gamey goofy like trash can robot <laughs> kind of feel, but it's uh it's pretty sweet looking, especially since it's free and you don't yeah. really have to do anything but say hey you can use my microphone and that's about it. Yeah, hey, uh, let's see here. I'm are you in Uncommon Serene Place? Because I'm looking for. I you. am in Gifted Serena Sorry. Ooh. Or Sienna. Excuse me. So. Oh. Hang on. See if you can come into Uncommon Serene Place, so we can we can hang out together while we podcast. We can wave at each other and stuff. Oh, yes. Okay. Here. Uh, I don't know if this will even work. 
All right. I'm gonna well, get, I'm going to give you a link and we can try that out or something. Okay. Like that. All right. All right. We'll, we'll try it out. All right. <laughs> Let's see. We're trying this live. You're you're getting a Human Factors Cast exclusive. This uh, is the first. <laughs> I really did not even think about trying this beforehand. I just shot you a link that should get take you to the room. All right. Um, Gifted Sienna Sorry. Okay. Let's see here. All right. So we're we're clicking on it. We're seeing if it works. Um. I am getting in now. We will see. Is is that you? You don't see anybody in there at all. No, and it's got a little like this is the ma- amount of people in the room, so I haven't seen it change yet. Oh, interesting. Uh, but the UI is not bad. I mean, it makes a lot of. It's pretty intuitive. I mean, it's got a little menu that gives you like you can invite friends, learn the basic basic of the space, sign up for updates, report issues. That's pretty sweet. It'll it'll give you an idea of who in, who's in your room. You can of course like stop and. Uh, stop your mic sharing and all that kind sure. of good stuff. So yeah. it's interesting, but still don't know what it's like when actual people in there. Yeah, I don't know. Oh. We're, oh, oh, do you see me? I think I see somebody. Did you give yourself a name? I did not or give myself not... a name. I... Oh, dude, this is totally you. Do you see a duck in front of you? I see a duck in front of me. I'm like right. hardly... Oh, That's hey, sweet. there you are. Hey, look at that. <laughs> all right, we got a Human Factors cast first. We are both hanging out in this uh, chat room here. Can can you hear me through the application at all? Are you? Do you have the stuff on? Hey, yes, yes, I can. I'm getting, I'm getting like, like a, a, oh, a double, double echo hey, sound. I'm getting the double echo sound too. All right. Well, I'm going to exit this because our listeners probably don't want to hear that. Okay. Enough. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> enough hanging out. That was interesting though. When you talked, it like uh, it gave me some visual feedback from your little your little floating robot that you were actually talking. So that was kind of cool too. Hey, look at that. That was kind of fun. It's it's almost like. Uh, Maybe we could just do that on Infinite this week. I don't know. <laughs> that would be sweet. We can just roam around VR. And just hang out with other people and kind of talk to them in virtual environment. That would be a fun Infinite episode. In case you're unaware, we do a separate podcast called Human Factors Cast Infinite where we talk about an infinite amount of possibility uh, for things and, uh, th- you know, infinite amount of topics. As for our Patreon subscribers, and, and we'll mention that a little bit later. But why don't we get into the last news story? All right, last news story. So researchers at Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Mellon University and Disney Research in Pittsburgh think that we can do more with our walls. So in a research paper they're presenting, they presented last week at ACM CHI Conference on Human Factors and Computing Systems, they presented a way to turn all the static walls that do little more than separate spaces into actual sensing, interactive, smart pieces of infrastructure. The result of their work was a prototype called the Wall Plus Plus, a wall that can actually track, touch, gesture, sense nearby bodies and their positions, as well as detect and locate active appliances. So to make the wall and keep it inexpensive and simple to construct, the researchers tested various conductive paints and the best way to apply them, whether a top coat was beneficial or hindrance, and how to connect the wall to electrodes with the best pattern to optimize that antenna sensitivity. So Nick, imagine that you can just interact with your wall to control your entire house in terms of your appliances or any of the things that you have connected. Think of like a real internet of things type house being uh, built up and actually interact. You, you can interact through as soon as you walk in the door. Yeah, so I am excited by this prospect for a variety of reasons. Obviously, first and foremost, I'm a VR guy. So VR, mixed reality, all the above. So what this means to me is that because in the future, this is this is kind of my idealized version of the future, so, so don't take this for gospel. But in the future, we all have these headsets on and we project 
to a common wall, and that is our working space, right? So you and I, Blake, if we share the same office and we both look at a wall, you know, I could have my calendar up on on your wall, and you could have your calendar up on my wall, and they're overlapping with our actual working spaces. And uh, with that, right, like if I were to go up and touch the calendar on the wall, this so this is this is getting into this technology here. If I were to go up and and touch this wall with my calendar on it. It would be able to sense where I'm at and you know where it's mapped to in the mixed reality. And then I'd be able to edit my calendar events just from interacting with this wall without having to like look at it and be on my keep floating keyboard and mouse or whatever. You know, I that's exciting for one reason. Another reason is that I'm all about this internet of things, right? But my partner not so much. She hates having to consult uh, a certain um, Alexa, a certain someone, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, an, a certain someone in the house to turn on or off the lights. And uh, wow, I just noticed this is from Disney Research too. <laughs> it is. This is all Disney Research this week, and they are wow, uh, man, they are just crushing it. I can't even get over some of the stuff they're putting together. I mean, to be fair, it's in in partnership with Carnegie Mellon. So, um, but but yeah, I this is this is another one of those things where if we could have sort of these uh, areas on our walls where you have the light switches, right? And and you could either do that or consult the uh, voice in your house <laughs> to turn them off. It'd just be another thing. And yeah, why don't you use a light switch? Well, it's not internet connected. And I'm assuming that this would be internet connected because it's so cool. But, you know, that's just an assumption on my part. Um, but I don't know. Those are a couple of things that I can think of to do with it. Did you have sort of applications that you think may be useful? Well, I, I like the... So I, I'm not, I'm kind of like your partner. I'm not so sold on always like having to consult either Amazon's preferred <laughs> AI or anybody's preferred AI to do anything. Uh, but however, caveat here, I use Siri nonstop all the time. Um, so I like the idea of having something where you could both interact with it verbally. Cause like if it's during the day, cool, other people in the house, it shouldn't really bother them. Gives you the information you need. But what if you're coming, coming into the house at night, having some kind of like centrally located or not even centrally located, but the ability to open your door and touch the wall to start interacting with your house, either turning on specific lights or dimming the lights or stuff like that. Or even, you know, turning on your television when you walk in without like having to, interact with anything verbally to not disturb others in the house would be really a really awesome idea but i i really like the workspace notion that you're bringing up nick and i i, lo- I like the idea about the calendar but i can just think of um like a de- designing in something like sketch or adobe xd where i can stand up and move the pieces and select them and make edits all while kind of like doing gestural based things uh on a wall versus just like kind of sitting at my desk with the computer and mouse. Cause sometimes the keyboard and mouse function, I just, I feel like I can't do exactly what I want to do. Right. Yeah. Is if I was able to, you know, physically reach out and use both my hands and put things together and kind of develop workflows that way. I just think it would be an awesome application of something like this. I agree. And I think, uh, you're kind of hitting to this next point that I want to make where I can see this technology being absolutely crucial for the classroom. Learning is such an interactive experience, and when you're just there, um, you know, trying to absorb information, it's hard. And so if you could have sort of a projector, instead of projecting on a screen, you're projecting on the wall and being able to interact with those elements uh, just through the wall and mapping, 
that would be huge, uh, especially for some of like these learning games where, you, like, I'm, I'm thinking young children here, where you match the word to the object. You know, even just being able to move those around on the um, on the screen, or or rather on the projected wall in the classroom, could be huge, right? And you could load up a variety of these different uh, uh, sort of modules where where. You know, depending on what the lesson plan is for the day, these children could learn that through interacting with it. And that's exciting to me, too. Yeah, it'd be a lot more fun than or even a lot more beneficial to people to learn that way where it's much more interactive. Because something I can even think of at a college level when doing like something like anatomy classes or even like getting really into some of the neurophysiology that goes on in the brain, like talking about like neuroscience classes or any of that kind of stuff, it would have been a lot more helpful at times to see kind of visual displays of what is actually what we think is happening in the brain and the parts that are lighting up and what that actually means. Like I think there's just endless possibilities for using visual aids like that in the classroom. Um, for, for little kids, but also for even adults. Um, because I, I know like in a lot of kind of my more like exercise science classes that I took in grad or in undergrad, that would have been really helpful to understand like what's going on in the muscular system, how blood flows through the body and seeing like visual and seeing like when you have impairments, what actually is happening in the body and ways you can like inter intervene, um, outside to kind of make changes and that kind of stuff so it's it's a cool concept and i i think that inter, that kind of introduction of those interactive tools plus mixed reality in the classroom is going to lead to a lot of different ways for people to learn maybe even more beneficially than just reading or trying to memorize things yeah well we have disney to thank for all the, all these things i didn't realize we pulled so much disney i try to get a variety of sources but they were just killing it this week so you know Props to them, I guess. We'll try to diversify next week. <laughs> yeah, it's something to, something I wanted to mention about all the Disney articles that I really, really liked, and we didn't really hone into that much on in the in our talking points about them. But they all were very good about calling out um, kind of the the limitations of the studies, and not not necessarily just the negative aspects of what was what they were trying to implement, but what really had to improve for the to see the technology move forward. And I think that's that's something that I think Nick and Woodrow and I had an offline conversation about. But it's important, like in any kind of scientific paper, to really understand like the impact, not just of like the positive or what's it what's going on in the future for this, but what potential negative impacts are there, or what is there that's limiting the technology from actually growing and being implemented more. So I thought that was a really awesome thing to see in their papers. Yeah, and you know, one other thing, as long as we're praising Disney for for <laughs> their research, I think one thing that they do. Uh, effectively is they communicate the the concept behind their research very effectively uh, they they have these well-produced videos that illustrate the concept and sort of the inner workings of these things for every research paper they do um, and I think that really does a good job of sort of explaining what the intent purpose and and implications are to the wide variety of, of people, right? Like it's not just human factors practitioners that are looking at this stuff. It's other multidisciplinary domains that are kind of dissecting these pieces and saying, hey, what can we use for our field? And they do a good job of explaining it in such a way that, you know, anyone could take this and run with it. And um, I, I really appreciate that about them. So there's that. 
Yeah, I definitely advocate for their like their their visual abstract is what those videos feel like to me. They're like a minute and thirty seconds of all the stuff you really want to know off the top of your head. So it's it's really good. Yeah. All right, Blake. Why don't you say we get into what came from Reddit this week? Let's do it. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit. Let's switch gears. Get to it. Came from Reddit. This is the part of the show where we search all over Reddit to bring you topics the community's talking about. So any subreddit's fair game as long as it relates to human factors and encourages discussion among the community. Blake, what do you want to do? So we got time for one of these. I'm I'm leaning more towards two, but I want your opinion. Uh, let's go to two. All right. So this is uh, from... Oh, God, I, this name is not going to happen, but it's from the user experience subreddit. It's SFE7ATLA7AM. <laughs> the name rolls right off the tongue. All right. It does. They go one. on to write, what is your standing on expert reviews? That's the question. The body says, I am a solid believer in user testing. I would like to see trends from users and would invest more of my time, most of my time doing that. But I have been approached by a lot asking me to, me to do a review, what they called an, a UX expert review which is for some reason costs more than a normal targeted user testing. And I wonder why that would be the case. I don't mind paying for a designer's opinion, but not as much as they pay, and I would invest more uh, in using that money somewhere else. What are your thoughts? Blake, I'm going to toss this one to you first, because I feel like you probably have some pretty uh, strong feelings about this. (laughs) Of course I do. Uh, so I want to preface everything that I'm going to say with this is my take on it. Um, and so if, if I'm not completely capturing what, uh, I don't know what their name is, I can't say it, but if I'm not completely capturing it's it. SFE7 ATLA 7 AM. Yes, him or her. <laughs> this is kind of my take on what you're being asked. So one, it sounds like it's really great that, that some that people are reaching out to you to want, wanting to pay you more money to do a, an expert review, in this case what you're calling a UX expert review, than just doing normal targeted testing. Um, and totally appreciate the fact that you like to do like solid user testing. I think that has probably the most benefit to companies. And this is what I think is happening here. Uh, but it might be wrong. I'm going to equate an expert user or user experience expert review to something similar to experts doing in human factors, what they call like a heuristic review. We will get an output based off of an expert reviewing a system and trying to spot issues. And I think what has happened is in, in a company's mind, it takes less time for you to do these kind of expert reviews than it does to actually run a full-blown user test. So you'll see them being willing to maybe pay more money so that you can you can do the review, give them the insights they need, and then run off. Um, and I even saw this when I was re- interviewing early for different UX jobs. Um, at startups and they were always looking for me to basically in the <laughs> in the intake interview to do an expert user review or user experience review on the spot provide actionable insights for them to take and go use in development on their product is, yeah on their so product. they're basically using job interviews for free labor sorry uh yeah for sure definitely unethical definitely caught, i don't like yeah, it I caught, yeah it's very unethical and i caught wind of that very fast and you know would send those people walking but th- that's kind of my take on what must be going on here. I mean, I don't in, – in the perfect world, you would do both and you wouldn't have just a straight-up just user, heuristic or user experience review being done in a vacuum by one person. Because uh, I don't – I think that that 
does not do as much good as the way that it's supposed to be done, right? Or the, at least the way that I was taught to do kind of like a heuristic review where it's more than one expert reviewing and coming to a consensus and then using those insights that they have based on coming to consensus with each other on testing in actual environments. So I, I think that's what's really happening, right? That you, you hear user testing and having to bring in people and it sounds like and is more work so getting this like expert sign off from somebody who knows UX or knows human factors really well is very appealing. And obviously, if they're trying to throw money at you to just do that so that they have the insights to go running with it. I mean, that's that makes a lot of sense why you're seeing that. Um, so it, in terms of whether you should invest more money in other places, I think it's if it's important to you to just invest in user testing more and like the the expert review stuff's not as much like your cup of tea, then continue pitching the stuff that you like to do and that you're confident in doing. Um, I th- personally, I think there's a, a place for both and I think that there's, they should be interplaying together, but that's just my kind of opinion and the way I like to tackle problems. So Nick, what, what do you have on this? You know, I'm pretty, pretty right there with you. Um, you know, I, I think the difference for me between user testing and these heuristic reviews is almost the summative versus formative assessment or evaluation where the heuristic or, or sorry, UX expert reviews, whatever we're calling it, the, the review piece is almost a summative evaluation, which is kind of looking at the outcome of, of whatever uh, thing you've been working on, right? It could be a program, could be anything. Um, But, but, that's that's sort of in my mind what the uh, expert heuristic review is for, where the user testing is much more uh, a formative evaluation, where you are kind of continuously iterating on something. You continuously need feedback on these changes, um, and to do that, you use these user assessments or, or um, these uh, sort of usability tests to inform what is the next step and. The thing with these summative UX expert reviews, heuristic reviews, I'm getting thrown off by terminology here, but it, it's all essentially the point I'm trying to make is that with these, you have somebody who has potentially done evaluations on a lot of different products and they have started to identify sort of these trends, right? And that's what a heuristic is it's these trends over a, a lot of different programs that hold true or should hold true for every program. And so these experts, if you will, are are sort of trained in and have this eye for it. And all they need is the context for how your system is going to work. And they get that very surface level assessment where these user assessments are going to be much deeper. They're going to be much more intense. You're going to get a lot more information out of them, but they're you know, more expensive to do. So that's, I'm kind of on the same page with you, Blake. I just wanted to add the formative and summative piece in there because I feel like they come in at different times. And uh, I don't know, that's that's where I'm at with it. But I, I largely agree with you and your assessment of expert assessments. <laughs> yeah, I w- in this case, it would be really nice to know what they mean by expert U- or UX expert review because I am like likening that to a heuristic review because uh, I can't imagine what the giant difference is there. I mean, it, that's kind of what it just sounds like. So it may be something completely different, but I've got a feeling that I'm not incorrect here. I have a feeling you're not incorrect either. Well, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Did you like our news stories that we covered Disney so much this week? Let us know. <laughs> 
If you have any suggestions for topics that are not Disney, you can follow us all over social media. Join the discussion on our Slack. Head on over to the Human Factors Cast, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter at H Factors Podcast. Be sure to check out our SoundCloud and leave us a comment over there or send us an email at humanfactorscast at gmail.com. If you want to do things the old-fashioned way, you can leave us a voicemail at 901-646-1432. That's 901-646-1HFC. If you like what we're doing and want to support us, you can support us on our Patreon at patreon.com slash humanfactorscast. We just went through and did a big revamp a couple months ago. We got a couple interesting things like Human Factors Cast Infinite, like I mentioned, uh, heuristic reviews. We have those on there, professional reviews, you name it. Uh, so if you can do that, great. Uh, if not, just go ahead and like, subscribe, review us, do all that stuff. All those metrics help us out too. Word of mouth. Uh, we got some word that some people have been talking about us, and that's good. So do that. That helps us too. And, of course, you can always reach us on our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnsdorf for hanging out with me and talking all things Disney today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about Baymax robotic arms? If you guys want a Baymax hug, you can always find me at Don't Panic UX across all social media platforms. Nick, thank you for such a wonderful show. It was good. I liked it. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. Pins. I feel like I should have had the Disney theme queued up for the end of that. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do are safe when they do so and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media and on your favourite podcast directory because it's more than just common sense.